hope this morning to the hope that comes through the resurrection and the power of the resurrection that God says is available and at work in us. So we turn our attention to this passage. Let us go to the Lord in prayer this morning. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we come before you asking, Lord, that you would open up our hearts and our eyes to the truth of your word, that your spirit would superintend and working by and with your word to change our hearts and change our lives. Lord, we celebrate the resurrection, but the resurrection is not just some abstract, joyful, happy thought, but rather it is a necessity because of the brokenness and the pain in this world. And because you redeem that and are powerful over it, it fills us with joy and with hope and even gives power to us in our own struggles. So Lord, help us to know this this morning. By the working of your Spirit, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. April 9th, 2017, seven days ago, Palm Sunday, Cairo, Egypt, Tanta, Egypt, the news report stated, the death toll rose to at least 49 Monday, state media reported. The first blast ripped through a Palm Sunday service at St. George's Church in Tonta, killing at least 27 and wounding 78 others, state TV reported. An explosive device had been placed under a seat in the main prayer hall, it said. Around the same time, in Alexandria, 18 civilians and four police officers were killed when a suicide bomber blew himself up outside of a Coptic church. And so one minute, people are singing, and the next minute there is tragedy for those who are alive, and for those who died suddenly, they're in the presence of God. And we've gathered here this morning to celebrate Easter, as do Christians around the globe and Christians in, in Egypt. We celebrate the hope of the resurrection that we now have. We celebrate the power of the resurrection. And we celebrate these things because we believe that Jesus Christ is risen from the grave, that he is reigning at the right hand of God, and that he is returning. And because of these things, we believe that there is hope for today, there is power for today. But you look around, where is it? And how does this power, this promise become expressed in our own lives? Fortunately, we currently have safety to worship. But some here on this Easter morning, you woke up and you decided to come to church and you were thinking you didn't really know how you were going to get through another day. And you come here in the midst of relationship struggles and circumstances that are out of your control, that you are powerless to change, that despite what you do, despite what you try, it doesn't change. And you can think, you know what, I don't don't have what it takes to deal with this. And even if I did have what it takes to deal with this, I don't even really know if I want to. And so we gather together, as Christians do across the globe, gather together on Sunday morning on Easter to celebrate Easter, and we really, really want something. We really want the hope of the resurrection. We really want the power of the resurrection to be at work in our own lives, to be at work in our families and the challenging relationships that we have. We really, really want the power of the resurrection to be present in the pains and struggles of our lives, yet sometimes it just seems elusive. It seems like you're, you're reaching for a cloud, and when you finally get there to grasp it, its substance 
you cannot hold on to. So the Apostle Paul writes this passage in Ephesians, and he's writing to a group of Christians who feel marginalized in their society. They feel that they are, and they are, under oppression. They are a very small church in the fifth largest and most powerful city in the world, a city that is a haven of occultic practices and goddess worship. And Paul is writing to Christians who feel powerless, they feel hopeless, they feel overwhelmed, and they feel surrounded by the miseries and the pain and the struggles of this life. And it is to them that Paul writes this letter, and he prays for them. And this is what he writes and he prays to them. He says, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Verse 18, he says what he's specifically praying for. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. Paul prays specifically for this church, for these people who are struggling, that they would know the hope of the resurrection and that they would know the power of the resurrection in their own life. For those of you that have been coming to Cornerstone, we briefly touched on this a couple weeks ago, and we're going to dive much more deeply into the the implications of it here this morning. Paul wants them to know the hope of the resurrection, but he begins with a startling prayer request. He says, I don't cease to give thanks to you, remembering you in my prayers. He says, and he's praying that the eyes of your hearts would be enlightened. What his prayer is, he's saying for this church in Ephesus, God, wake them up. Open up their eyes, open up their hearts so that they can see, open up their hearts so that they can understand. May they be enlightened in their darkness so that they could see that there is a reality that is bigger than their problems, that there is a story that is grander than their individual struggles, and there is a purpose that is bigger than their pain. Wake them up, enlighten their eyes, enlighten their hearts. One of the things that happens for each one of us is in the midst of pain, in the midst of struggle, in the midst of a crisis, our world shrinks to the size of your crisis. It shrinks to the size of your problem so that all you can do is anything that you see, you see it through the lens of your struggle. It is very difficult to see anything beyond what you are going through in that particular moment. And so Paul prays for them and we could join within this prayer saying, Lord, open up our eyes. Open up our eyes, open up our, enlighten our hearts beyond the confusion of life so that we would know this truth that is greater than our struggles, troubles, the story that is bigger than our individual heartaches and pain. Open our eyes so that we would see. Open our eyes so that we would know. He says what he wants them to know. He wants them to know the hope of the resurrection. He characterizes it this way, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, a future reality. What are the, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? That Paul says, I want you to have the hope of what's coming in the future. And Scripture says that all of these things are the outworking of God's resurrection, of Jesus' resurrection from the dead. That you would know the hope of the future. 
the hope of the resurrection. It's important to clarify here what we mean by hope and what the Bible means by hope. Because hope in the Bible is not how we use the term. It is not wishful thinking. Like we use the term to say something like this, I hope dinner is good tonight. Or parents are saying today, I hope my kids don't mess up their beautiful dresses before we get a family picture today. It is something you wish would happen, but there is no certainty, in fact, a lot of doubt that it actually might occur. But biblical hope is quite the opposite. It is joyful, the joyful, persevering anticipation of a future certainty, of something that is definitely going to occur. And so it is looking forward to that future day, which is a definitive reality. And Paul is saying, I want you to know the hope of the resurrection, the hope of the future, and that you would know that hope in this present moment. Why do we need to know it? Because this world is not the way it's supposed to be, is it? I mean, you know that from your own experiences. You look at the news, you read the newspaper, and you hear all the turmoil, the the trauma, the tragedy across our globe. You know it in your workplace, and you're like, this just isn't supposed to be like this. You know it in your own family, in your relationships, and the struggles that you have between a husband and wife, parents and kids, siblings, extended family. You're like, it's just not supposed to be like this, let alone when you're faced with tragedy or disease or illness. You say, it wasn't supposed to be like this. And Scripture is blatantly honest about this. It says, you're right. Your experience is true because this world is not the way that it's supposed to be. There is sin in this world. There is misery in this world. There is brokenness in this world. There is enmity and bitterness and hatred that ought not to be there. It's one of the reasons why I love the Bible is it is so blatantly honest about our human condition. And it clarifies for us that the reason for all of this is that each one of us has wandered away from God. Each one of us has centered our lives on ourselves and their pursuit of our own selfish interests instead of centering them on God himself, not only individually but mankind as a whole. And the result is that there's misery, stress, and turmoil in our own lives, and it extends beyond our own lives to our relationships. It extends beyond our relationships to the entire creation and the entire created order. And there's not one person who doesn't experience the miseries to one degree or another every day. And that is why we need Easter. Because today, there is hope because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Some 2,000 years ago, it seemed as if the miseries of this life were victorious. It seemed as if the evil in this world had conquered and won. But on that very first Easter morning, the ground shook and the earth quaked. And Jesus Christ was resurrected from the grave, not as some sort of mystical, hallucinogenic experience, but bodily resurrected as a historical event in the history of this world. And he was seen by over 500 eyewitnesses. And what the Bible tells us is that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is a foretaste of the future. It is a preview of what is to come. And if that is a preview of what is to come, what that means is that right now, there is real hope for the realities and the pain of right now. Because through Jesus Christ, his death on the cross and resurrection from the grave, God is making the world right again. Indeed, Scripture says that he is reconciling all things to himself, whether in heaven or on earth, by his blood shed on the cross. 
And this cosmic reconciliation that God is working and will be completed is not wishful thinking. It is a sure and certain hope. It is the hope of the resurrection for us today. It is the sure and certain hope that the sufferings and the struggles of this life will pass. That there will be a greater resurrection to new life. And the sufferings of these days will be incomparable to the wonder and the glory that is to come so much so that the pain in your life right now will seem like a vapor. It'll seem like a distant memory. And that hope of the resurrection, of what God is definitively doing and the reality that we have before us, grants us hope to persevere in the midst of our struggles right now. What we find most amazing about Paul's prayer here is not just simply talking about how the future gives you hope for today, but he talks about something that happens right now in this present moment. And what he says in this present moment is that there is the power of the resurrection available for you. He says, I pray that you would know the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe. Well, what is that power? He says, it's the power that's just like this. That you would know the greatness of his power according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ Jesus when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. <clears throat> there is a present reality of the power of the resurrection that God has towards us and for us. In the example that Paul gives of what that power is like, he says, the power that God has for you to work in you is the same power that brought Jesus from dead to life and seats him at the right hand of God. Consider that. Consider the power needed for a dead man to be alive again. A dead man who was dead for three days to come to life. Consider the power of what would need to happen within an individual body, within Jesus' body. I mean, there are perhaps trillions, a hundred trillion cells in our body. Each one of these cells carries out thousands of different chemical reactions. And thus a bodily resurrection, writes Dr. Miller, would require some phenomenal power to energize life into all these individual cells, but it would have to be done in such a specialized way that a nerve cell could resume their new unique function. And heart cells could perform theirs, and blood cells and bone cells could do theirs, and so on. He continues, Consider the heart as just one example. It beats, on average, 70 times a minute, 4,200 times an hour, 100,800 times a day, 36,288,000 times a year. And for that to happen, Thousands of processes within each cell must act in a coordinated way to ensure that the blood entering the right side of the heart is effectively propelled into the lungs where the red blood cells contained in it discharge carbon dioxide and pick up oxygen, following which it returns to the left side of the heart where it is propelled to the tissues of the rest of the body so that they might receive precious oxygen they might, that they need to sustain their many functions. This all happens at least every second 
in such a smooth fashion that we are not even aware of it. And at the moment we die, all these processes came screeching or come screeching to a halt. A bodily resurrection implies that thousands of processes and trillions of cells must be restarted with the unique intricacy and intercoordination that existed before death. What unimaginable power. And Paul says, I am praying that you would know the power of the resurrection in your life. In fact, it's something that Paul wishes for himself. In Philippians, he says what he longs for is that he would know Christ and that he would know the power of his resurrection. Paul says that he would like to know Christ and know the power of his resurrection. Remarkable statement, is it not? I mean, Paul met Jesus. Paul wrote most of the New Testament. And yet Paul says, I want to know Christ and I want to know the power of the resurrection. What is he saying? He's saying, I want to know the power of the resurrection, not just in my head, but experientially. I want to know it in my everyday struggles. I want to know it in the, I want to know his power in the midst of my pain and heartache. I want to know his power in the midst of disappointments, when relationships are a mess, when there's guilt and shame and bitterness and unforgiveness. I want to know the power of the resurrection. I want to know it in me and I want to know it experientially. And Paul says he wants to know it even in this very moment when he is writing, when he is chained to a Roman guard. You see, this is one of the things that makes Christianity unique in comparison to the other religions of this world. You might be here today and you consider yourself to be a follower of Confucius or you a follower of Muhammad or the Buddha. Take your pick. One of the, those that are regarded as the great teachers of this world. And you may like what they have to say and you try to put those things their practices to be at work in your life. And as you do that, you try, to, you try those things, you try it out. But Confucius doesn't do anything for you. He's dead. And Muhammad doesn't do anything for you. And he doesn't do anything for any Muslim because he's dead. And the Buddha doesn't do anything because he also is dead. The unique claim of Christianity is that Jesus Christ who not only was an amazing teacher, is also the one who was resurrected from the grave and is still alive today. And this same resurrected Jesus sends his spirit to work in your life so that you are not without hope and you are not without power, for his spirit works in you. And the same power that brought Jesus from dead to life is available to be at work in you. And that makes Christianity different. But the power of the resurrection, quite frankly, is not for everyone. Paul says that the power of the resurrection that he has towards us is towards those who believe. Not just some sort of abstract belief of, I believe in, you know, I'm a spiritual person, or an abstract belief of like, well, I believe in God, or not even a Christianized version of that abstract belief of saying, well, I believe that there was a Christ and that he died on the cross for wrongs and he rose for new life. Not abstract. It's a belief that needs to be personal that says Jesus Christ died for my sins. He died for my wrongs. And he rose from the grave to give me new life. And my hope is only found in Jesus Christ who died and rose from the grave. Not abstract, but personal to you. Is that what you believe? And if you're here today and that's not what you believe, it is good that you are here. And there is hope for you. There is power available to you that comes through Jesus Christ. 
And the way it comes to you is for you to turn and to acknowledge to Jesus that you don't have any hope. That you've done things and said things that you ought not to have done or said and that you failed to do the things that you should have done. And that because of those things that you don't have any hope but that you believe, you consciously say, I am going to believe that what makes me right with God, what gives me hope in this world, is not how good I've done or how bad I've done, but the one thing that makes me right is that Jesus Christ is my substitute. That he takes the punishment that I deserve on the cross. That he rose from the grave to give new life and new life abundant to me. If that is you, would today be the day that you turn and trust in Jesus Christ? And for those of you here who are Christians, you may feel that there's something missing in your life, that you believe this. Notice what it says. The immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe... It's present tense. It's speaking of a call to a continual belief, not, oh, yeah, I believe some time ago when I was a kid some years ago. Yeah, I believe that. No, it is a power for those who believe here in this present moment. And for those who believe, there is the power of the resurrection that works enabling, encouraging, convicting, propelling, empowering someone to live for Christ and for Christ to live in them in the midst of the struggles, in the midst of the pain. But maybe this has been too abstract. What then does the power of the resurrection look like in a person's life? Let me be very specific. Are you a wife who has contempt for your husband? Are you a husband who has written your wife off as a hopeless case? Are you a teenager who feels that you are justified in feeling dark thoughts? Are you a parent who frets and seethes at your children? Are you someone who's maybe unmarried, whose other things haven't gone the way that you want, and so your life has been stained by disgruntlement because you feel that you've been shafted by life? It is the power of the resurrection that gives you an abundant and fulfilling life, irrespective of your circumstances. Are you someone for whom your own selfishness and sense of entitlement causes you to magnify minor offenses into capital crimes. It is the power of the resurrection that turns your griping into gratitude. Are you someone who has been terribly wounded or hurt or even abused? It is the power of the resurrection that knits the gaping gashes in your soul back together. Are you someone who has put up the walls of self-protection and you only let people in this far, you only let people get to know you just this much because you are terrified that if they got to know you any further, that they would turn and run in the other direction. It is the power of the resurrection that moves you and frees you from living in fear to living in freedom. Are you someone who feels that there has got to be more to life than eating and sleeping and working and hanging out? It is the power of the resurrection that fills your life with meaning and purpose. Are you someone who thinks God could not possibly love me or help me? My failures are too great. They're too often. They're too frequent. They're too big. They're too strong. In fact, I think God is as disgusted with me as I am with myself. It is the power of the resurrection that comforts and cleanses your conscience. So that you would know the truth that God in Christ Jesus does not despise you but delights in you. 
that he does not shun you, but he welcomes you in. It is the power of the resurrection at work in you that frees you to, to learn to, to more and more to love and less and less to be embittered and angry. It's the power of the resurrection so that you can learn to live with sexual and financial purity and less and less to be driven by sordid self-interest. Are you someone who is stressed from every direction? It's the power of the resurrection that gives you a divine Peace that surpasses human understanding. Are you someone who doesn't know how you can endure through another day? It's the power of the resurrection that sustains you to walk and not grow weary, to run and not grow faint. In fact, it is the hope of the resurrection and the power of the resurrection that frees someone in the midst of horrific tragedy, in the face of loved ones who have been slaughtered, to say to their killers, thank you, we love you, we pray for you. See, on Monday night in Egypt, there's a priest there, Willie George, who gave a message the day after the massacre in Egypt. His message was entitled, What Will We Say to Those Who Kill Us? And this is what he said. I'm going to read several chunks of it because it is an amazing example of how the hope of the resurrection and how the power of the resurrection works in a person in the face of unimaginable tragedy. This is what he said on Monday night, the day after. What will we say to those who kill us? The first thing we will say is, thank you very, very much, and you won't believe us when we say it. You know why we thank you? I will tell you. You won't get it, but please believe us. You gave us to die the same death as Christ, and this is the biggest honor we could have. Christ was crucified, and this is our faith. He died and was slaughtered, and this is our faith. You gave us, and you gave them to die. We thank you because you shortened for us the journey. We thank you because you gave to fulfill what Christ said to us. Behold, I send you out as lambs among wolves. We were lambs. Our only weapons are faith in the church we pray in. I carry no weapon in my hand. We are so grateful that you helped us fulfill this saying of Christ. Thank you for helping us achieve our goal. You're helping us and you don't even know it. I know you don't understand, but I'm trying to explain it to you. There are people we visited at home to encourage them to come to church. We visit them three, four, five times and still they won't come. But what you're doing here, you're bringing people to church that never come. Believe me, it's bringing to church the people who never come. People who were living in sin and away from God after the bombing at St. Peter's Chapel in the cathedral, they were saying, you never know when your time's up. You better take care of your own spiritual life right now. In all these visitations that we do at people's houses, you are so much more effective. You're filling up our churches. You are filling up our churches. Let me speak plainly here. Usually attendance at the eve of the Monday of Pascha is very little. That is the Monday night service after Palm Sunday. He says, usually attendance is very little. 
People are usually so tired after a long Palm Sunday that they don't come to the eve of Monday services. But when I came in tonight, there were people on chairs outside the sanctuary. There were people in the balcony seating. The church is completely full. There isn't even one empty nook. Thank you. We are so grateful that you're helping fill up our churches because when you do these things, you irritate the soul of the person who was lazy before. You wake up his conscience. You wake up the love of God within him and it prods him to come to church. And can you see why we thank you? We're not being deceptive. I say to you, thank you. Thank you for all you have done for us without even knowing it. The second part of the message we want to send to you is that we love you. And this, unfortunately, you won't understand at all. Maybe you won't believe us when we say we're grateful, but this you won't even understand. Why won't you understand it? Because this is a teaching of our Christ. I want to explain to you about our Christ. I want to tell you about how wonderful he is. We Christians don't have enemies. We don't have enemies. Others make enmity with us. The Christian doesn't make enemies because we are commanded to love everyone. And so we love you. And we love you because this is the teaching of our God that I'm to love you no matter what you do to me. And I love you very much. And I want to say one last thing to you. We're praying for you. Because the one who told us to love you told us to bless those who curse you and pray for those who spitefully use you. So my instructions from my loving God make it, dutiful, make it my duty to pray for you. To our God be the glory now and forever. Amen, he writes, states. It is the power of the resurrection that in the midst of unimaginable tragedy, frees you to say to your killers, thank you, we love you, we pray for you. So the next time that you are in the midst of pain, the next time that you are in the midst of the misery and the struggle of this life, pause and turn to Jesus Christ because there is power for us who believe. There is hope for us who believe. And so may we join with the Apostle Paul in praying, may God open our eyes to the hope of the resurrection. May God open our hearts to the power of the resurrection. And in case you're wondering, is the power of the resurrection at work today? Absolutely. It is at work. And those of us who believe in the historical fact of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And he is our hope. And in him is our power. Hallelujah. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I praise you and I thank you that you are not distant or removed from the pain and the struggle and the suffering and the tragedy of this life. You don't pretend that it doesn't exist, but far from it, Lord, not only do you confront it in the face, you conquered it. And Lord, on the cross, you took the wrath of God being poured out on Jesus Christ to be our substitute, but more than that, Lord, on the cross, you declare that you are reconciling all things to yourself, whether on earth or in heaven, through the blood of Jesus Christ shed on the cross. And Lord, you are using what Christ did in the continued working of your spirit to undo the evil in this world, 
for your power to be at work in the midst of heartache and pain, irrespective of our circumstances, to fill us with joy and with hope. Father, there are some who are gathered today who are in the midst of heartache and pain. And Lord, would you, by your Spirit, fill them with the joy of the resurrection, the hope of the resurrection. Lord, would your Spirit give them the power of the resurrection so that you would be the hand in their glove, that your Spirit would work through them and work in them and fill them with joy so that your people might be redeemed, so that brokenness might be healed, so that there might be peace where there's enmity, and that your name might be honored and glorified because Jesus Christ is alive today. In his name we pray, amen.